0: This episode of Fluid Thoughts is trigger warned for violence and sexual assault. (laughs) (sighs) Welcome back, niggas and friends, girls, gays, theys and thems. It is your host, Fluid Flower. Um, And we are back with another episode of Fluid Thoughts. Today's episode is very special because um, I am introducing to you my Patreon. It is up and it is live. I have made my first post on there. And the reason why I'm introducing my Patreon finally is because number one, this topic that we're talking about today, HBCUs and the Divine Nine, and what do they materially do for black people is kind of a touchy subject for me. And so I wanted to, you know, say my piece in the form of a fiction story also to like you know to protect the integrity of you know these institutions that I attended and that I'm a part of and also your girl is not trying to get sued (laughs) so um we're gonna dive right into it um like I said we are talking about HBCUs and the divine nine now I just want to go ahead and preface and say a disclaimer I am not in any way, shape, or form shitting on HBCUs. When I think about who I was before I went to my university, Fisk University, I was a black girl who had no idea who I was. I was not in community with with a lot of people who went to HBCUs because the thing was like, all of our parents and teachers and pastors, everyone's like preparing you to go to like a big 10 school or trying to amp you up to go to like the Ivy League. It's very few people, at least in my experience, who were like, oh, attend the HBCU, attend the HBCU in in regards of HBCUs people talked about them like they were safety schools or that they're party schools like it was a lot of anti-blackness like surrounding that so for me when I made the decision to go to an HBCU I was like oh shit I'm gonna be like on a different world this should have been be like stomp the yard Like, I had, those are, like, my only, like, frame of references when it comes to, like, black schools and black culture. And mind you, I went to a black elementary school, black middle school, black high school, but when, you know, those schools are modeled or in a district that is white and only became, you know, like, black because of integration or rather desegregation, like, we still had, like, all the same, like, sort of, like, regular old white customs. Like, when I was in marching band, we did DCI core-style marching. We didn't get to do like marching, like PVA, like uh, PVA, like Prairie View A&M, um, like, like Yates and all the other like black high schools like in the city of Houston, right? So I'm this black girl who plays flute and I'm they're trying to make me go to University of Houston or like uh, Sam Houston. And I was like, I don't want to go to any of these schools. And I knew that like there was, I was just wanting to go to a school that's like out of state. And so one of the only schools that ended up accepting me that was out of state was fisk so it's like okay i'm gonna go to fisk girl one thing i will say about an hbcu all the self-hatred that i learned in my k-12 through education the respectability politics the internalized blackness I thank God for the people who were positioned as my professors, as my deans, as fellow students who were around me. And I just got to be in this place of blackness where I just got to undo all of that white nonsense that has been in my head for over 18 years. And so I will always, always and forever be thankful to HBCUs. While I was at the HBCU, (laughs) I joined a D9 organization. Now this is where, for me, this is where things get tricky. So yes, while I was reaffirmed in my blackness, um, and I was undoing a lot of internal anti-blackness, um, and a lot, and undoing a lot of self-hatred, what I've noticed is that these institutions still operate in a neoliberal apparatus, and they still operate very much so inside the structure of white supremacy. And I know that now because of the politics that I hold now, but also being able to call back to like certain experiences. When we think about academia, academia and the institutions of academia, these are not safe places for radical thought, and these are not safe places for for black people. <laughs> They're also not safe spaces for women. I mean, you there are so many professors who are white, black, Asian, whatever the color you know, um, they're normally men in these like high positions of power who have have allegations against them for like sexual assault or sexual harassment against their female students or female co-workers. And you also have like these women um, professors who like back them and protect these men. So it's like we understand that institutions that are inside of this shithole of America, they're going to act like the institution that they are because they're trying to protect whatever it is they're trying to fucking protect, which is normally an abuser. And so that doesn't excuse HBCUs. Like the shit happens there as well. I recall a very specific time. There's so many like instances that I can point out to, and I'm going to talk about a few of them. One of the times there was this guy um, that everybody knew on campus he was known for like his dancing that's all I'm gonna say and I remember I was in the library and he came up to me and he smacked me on the ass like grabbed me lifted me up on the library table like he wanted to like have sex with me and I was pushing and fighting and scratching and I was like what the fuck is your problem nigga who the fuck do you think you are and he was like yeah I like that rough shit I immediately went to the dean of students at the time and I reported her reported him to her and what she said was oh you know that's just such and such being such and such you know you just you just got to make sure you don't you're not wearing nothing that that can make these boys go crazy I wanted to beat that old lady's ass right then and motherfucking there How fucking dare you, you stupid bitch. (laughs) There was another time where a person who was a supposed good friend of mine who was also a man um wanted to I don't know prove himself or some way thank god I had a friend down there because we're in this basement of our dormitories where we wash our clothes and she was down there reading her book and washing her things and then all of a sudden he does sort of the same thing like he picks me up and was like yeah we could get into it right here in the washing machines Thank God that she was there, because I'm like, I can't fight off a dude who's 6'5 and 250 pounds. I can't, like, there's, as big as I am, I I do not have that kind of strength to fight off a man. And so, like, when I report these instances, again nothing would be done and it would be chalked up to he said she said there were so many instances and rumors um and stories about young girls being like assaulted at our school at our campus by like specific individuals who were repeat offenders and our campus absolutely did nothing um and and, I, and to me, when I think of like safe spaces for black people, you would think that an HBCU would be one of them, but unfortunately it was not. And it's so sad because it's just like you think blackness, oh, we about to get it together. We about to fight the white man together. And then here you have niggas on the yard repeating the same instances of white supremacy and white patriarchy. Over and over again. I'm using niggas as a gender neutral term. I'm not just talking about like male gender. So assaults are happening. Harassment is happening. You know, I I personally, you know, after reporting my two incidents, I felt like I was un- like nobody was listening to me. Then nobody heard me. Mind you, all of this is happening at the same time, like throughout your tenure at this school or, or rather when you're at school, they're like throughout your matriculation. So throughout my matriculation at this school, You have this school essentially trying to reinforce the talented 10th, black capitalism, uh, get out and vote, like all of these things where you are essentially being reinforced to uphold the status quo of society. And if the status quo of society is white supremacy, patriarchy, sexism, ableism, then ultimately you're being taught that at an HBCU as well, it's just covered in blackface. There are so many countless examples that I can think about where I, as a black woman, was not protected, namely the two incidents that happened there. There are times where we see that um, our buildings are not ADA compliant or the the buildings have mold, (laughs) the buildings have, you know, like unlivable conditions we saw that going on at Howard University students having mold in the building having mushrooms grow on the back of their paintings there are so many other HBCUs who have also gone through these things and ultimately if the purpose of these HBCUs is to make sure that black people get an education while we're getting the education we should be protected yes black women should be protected yes black men should be protected yes black non-binary people People should be protected, yes. So why do these institutions essentially mimic the same structure that doesn't protect us as black people? For example, hazing. Why does hazing still exist? People call it, whatever you want to call it, pledging, bonding activities with your frat brothers or sisters it doesn't fucking matter have you ever put into perspective that a lot of our organizations their founding year 1913 1911 1908 1906 you have to consider the fact that these young people starting these organizations in the early 1900s that their parents and their grandparents were slaves So why in the fuck are you beating the shit out of other black people who are looking for sisterhood, who are looking for brotherhood, and you're beating the shit out of them, and you want to sit up here and you want to talk about we're uplifting the black community? How you uplifting the black community when you beating the hell out of niggas? (laughs) Girl, you beating more niggas in the LAPD. Girl, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Now, I only went through one national process, the official process to maintain and obtain my letters. But the stories that I have heard, the stories that I have researched, I am looking into the U.S. hazing deaths database. There's two parts of it. I believe there've been like over 200 deaths of hazing, but I think of the 200 deaths, only 12 have come from black Greek letter organizations. But honestly, that's 12 too many. That's 12 too much. And that's the extreme part of only talking about the deaths. Like nobody's even mentioning the actual act of hazing and the PTSD that people get from it. And how they are ready and gung-ho to go back and do it to other people who have joined their organization. My whole point being is that we as black people do not have the time to when literally, number one, the U.S. is crumbling around us and black people have been public enemy number one since the 1400s. We don't have the fucking time to be sitting around here trying to brand each other and put letters across our chest when there is an actual war against us going on and i think it's a bit distracting to sit up here and to be beating the shit out of people tying people's hands behind their back and throwing them in the ocean and be like oh go save your sister because that happened with i believe uh, a d9 sorority in um california um they're like the first case of like a black person dying through this like pledge process at um a university or excuse me, our college at Atlanta in 1989 was exercised and literally beat to death. And this person had congenital heart disease. And so it's just like, why why are we not able to use these organizations to build community to further a movement that will give liberation to Black people? Why are we using these organizations to literally harm Black people? At some point, you have to start asking yourself: Are you truly pro-Black? And I'm trying not to sound respectable because it it I don't want to be borderline Black on Black crime. But what I do want to see, but I do want to analyze and talk about: How can we truly? Say that we are for uplifting black people when you're taking black people from the community who come from poverty, who come from uh, wage depression, who come from like the 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 brute force and feeling the brute force and the violence of, of police brutality and the violence of, of capitalism. And then you'd say and you promise them all of these connections, you promise them all of this like social capital and that your life is gonna change, but in order for you to get that, you gotta let somebody stick a candy cane up your booty hole like this it's fucking wild it's fucking wild senior year of high school when we are all like picking and choosing what colleges that we want to go to um we were all also talking about all of the organizations we want to join Oh, I want to be a this and I'm to be a that and I remember the teacher being like hey like you never know what you want to be until you get on campus she told us about the time that she had narrowed her choices down to two she went to the first one, emphasis on first. Um, she went to the first informational and she said that back then it was very different. Back then pledging was actually legal. It was above ground pledging. So you go to the informational or the rush um, and the, she said the rush leader of that sorority said, if you wanna be in my sorority, you need to stick these hot dogs <laughs> You need to stick these hot dogs up your hoo-ha. She said she walked out of there so motherfucking fast. Because why the hell are you asking me to stick a hot dog in my motherfucking coochie? G- Jesus be offense. God be a fence around me. Because who you know who do stuff like that? White people. I see white people. The point is... We don't have to do that kind of bullshit to build community with one another. These organizations and arguably these institutions as HBCUs should be used as building grounds for the movement. It was at one point when we look at the history historically um, in terms of. I know, for example, Fisk in the sixties, they demanded all of their, you know, teachers to not be white anymore. And we're like, we want black curriculum. We're black students, but this is at the height of the black power movement, the black arts movement, the civil rights movement. Like there were so many things, so many things going on. So what I want to know is, at what point did we say to ourselves that black excellence is okay and that having a seat at the table and essentially mimicking white supremacy with a black face, when did that now start to equate to liberation? Well, I mean, I know the answer it's counterinsurgency and COINTELPRO and literally neutralizing and quelling and killing our our revolutionaries and our leaders. And at the same time, I think that with the information that is out here today, especially with People like Black Power Media, Dr. Sharice Burton Stelly, Dr. Jared Ball, Dr. Gerald Horn. Like there are so many dope ass intellectuals. There's so many academics who talk about this stuff, who can give us the truth, the way, and the and and the the modalities and the avenues as to how we can use, uh, or rather how we can build organizations to effectively help Black people. Me personally. I don't even really... And I'm going to just say this and be so fucking raw, real, and honest. I don't even really claim my letters. I had a very terrible experience. I'm not going to get into it personally. When you read the fiction story, like I said, the fiction, you will understand why I have these feelings. But my point is, and my point being that we as black people do not have to put each other through hell and high water to wear three letters across your chest. And also what do what do these organizations what are they doing for black people materially if black people are wage depressed and black people are being burdened by poverty by capitalism by all these superstructures around us how are these institutions and how are these organizations helping to alleviate that burden because if you're not then again you're just a part of the status quo so I have way more thoughts on that but what I really want to emphasize today here is the story so we're gonna come back and we're gonna take a quick commercial break and then I'm gonna read you the snippet and the one of the reasons why I'm not talking about this particular topic for too long I have PTSD from all the shit that I went through in this in this space that was supposedly supposed to be safe for me as a black person, as a black woman. And so this is just one of those things that I haven't healed from yet. So I would much rather tell you my experience in a fictional story than to come on here and just keep going and going and going. Cause I pretty much made my point. Anyway, we're gonna take a quick commercial break. And after that, I'm gonna read you a story what is going on my beautiful orchids it's your host fluid flower and i am here to let you know that the patreon is live go to www.patreon.com and search fluid flower media that's f-l-u-i-d-f-l-o-w-e-r-m-e-d-i-a here, I'll be posting exclusive stories that I have written and also exclusive video content. For just $3 a month, you can help a small creator live their wildest dreams. Be sure to follow me on all socials to stay updated on content. Now let's get back to the show. All right, all right, all right, my pretty dears, We are back and we are now ready for the story time portion of the show. I actually might bring this portion back because I feel like a bit more centered um, and I feel more connected when I read these stories because sometimes when I get on here and speak, I just feel like I'll be going all over the place, which is fine, right? The show is called Fluid Thoughts, but I think when I tell these stories, my point gets driven home a little bit better. So without further ado, this is a story titled The New Underground, part one by Ephemena Imanife. Are you sure you wanna do this? This shit is not a game. Once you say you want sisterhood, there is no turning back. I want sisterhood more than I want air, I said. Okay, you need to call me at 8.08 p.m. and tell me my 22 founders. Click. Let's rewind. Let me tell you about a girl who was about to undergo one of the most metamorphic journeys of her life. She would reinvent herself anew. She would no longer be the fat caterpillar, but the gorgeous and delicate butterfly she was destined to be. A story about a girl who longed for something bigger than herself. Nah, I'm just bullshitting. I just really wanted to be an Aphrodite Phi Lambda. I saw how them smooth-ass women would sort of sashay across the campus looking flawless. Hair check makeup check gpa major fucking check and a lot of them are dark skin not that dark skin was a requirement to be an aphrodite but it felt good knowing that i was represented even if that representation was dipped in a false sense of validity i knew how the saying goes in our community light-skinned girls are venus omicron pi and dark-skinned girls are aphrodite phi lambda dark skins as if we were some sort of species. Their lives seemed so put together. They were in shape, had good grades, and always had a man. The whole nine yards. It's no secret that I wanted to join once I enrolled at my campus of Coventry University. I binge-watched step shows and probates from various HBCUs on YouTube. The Aphrodites from Browning, Piedmont, Edinburgh, Denton, Southeastern, and other prestigious HBCUs were running their yard, meaning these ladies were the epitome of black wealth and self-expression and damn good at stepping and hosting events. Hell, even the Aphrodites at PWIs, predominantly white institutions, were fucking flawless. Junior year of college would be my year to join. <sighs> but unfortunately, one must have at least 30 credit hours to join fraternities and sororities at HBCUs. So I decided that my first two years I would take my time to build my GPA and get involved in events. I was having the time of my life. And then the Aphrodites came back on the yard after being suspended for 15 years. They had crossed a centennial line, the new era 26 women that I had known over the course of two and a half years at Coventry University. 26 women who would become the bane of my existence. I didn't realize that becoming an Aphrodite myself would put a rift in our friendship like the San Andreas Fault Line. Or maybe it was there all along. Either way, we would all pay for our sins on Judgment Day. Under no circumstances should any of you young ladies and distinguished young ladies at that be engaged in any illegal hazing activities, said the chapter president. Ladies of Aphrodite Phi don't pledge. The chapter president was an oddball of sorts. She was like an old person trapped inside a young person's body. Regardless, I made sure to cozy up to her throughout the summer, but I wanted popularity more than I wanted her approval. I wanted to pledge, but in reality, I had no fucking clue what it meant to pledge. The only knowledge of pledging that I had was watching Spike Lee's school days when his character pledged Gamma Phi Gamma, when the light skinned girls and the dark skinned girls were singing good and bad hair, good and bad hair. See if I care. Growing up, I would watch step shows and step routines from a different world and stomp the yard over and over again. I knew nothing of the world of people being locked in the trunk of cars or being exercised to death. I knew nothing of the paddlings or taking wood. I didn't know about the chapter of other black sororities in different states that blindfolded and tied new initiates' hands behind their back and threw them in the ocean to save their sister. I knew nothing. I knew that it wasn't easy, but the multitude of people across college campuses, both historically black and PWIs, did it. There was a social capital to be gained and I wanted it. I dreamt of the doors it would open and the connections that I would have. But like I said, I knew nothing. All I knew was that if you didn't want to be called paper, you better get your ass in somebody's house and pledge. (sighs) Okay, so (laughs) that's all you get if you want to read the full first part, you have to subscribe to the Patreon. It's $3 a month and I will be uploading new parts every week. Um, yeah, like I said, this was a very difficult episode for me to talk about. Um, and I really wanted to express the multitude of what I'm feeling through this story. So I will be updating you when the story, um, when new parts of the story will be out on the Patreon. But until then, my lovelies, this was great. I really hope you, at least for the first part, <laughs> for the first month, go and subscribe to the Patreon, and you get to read this wonderful story that I have written. Um, that only a few people that know me personally have ever written that have ever read. So um, I'm ready to share this story with the world. So yeah, it would mean the world to me if you went subscribed and read, and hopefully you took a piece of what I was trying to say to heart. So. Yeah, this has been great. This has been scary. (laughs) I come on here every day and I do my best and that's all we can do at the end of the day. I hope you all enjoy and I will see you next week.